to the Clifford Chance podcast, where our experts discuss pressing issues and trends faced by the business world today. We'll be talking about the European Union's approach to Brexit. We'll talk about how the EU is negotiating, what their priorities are, and the difference between the EU and UK approaches, and what businesses should consider in the coming months. I'm joined by my colleagues, Michelle Petit and Gail Orton. Michelle is the former head of the European Commission's legal service and now off-council at Clifford Chance, based in Paris. And Gail recently rejoined us as our head of EU policy and have, having just spent four years working in-house at a food manufacturer based in London. My name is Katrin Scheinberg and I'm a partner based here in Paris, specialized in EU and antitrust law. So we're heading towards the March 29 exit day next year. And it finally seems as if we were going to see some progress towards whatever the final outcome will be. This has clearly been a very tense process and, of course, completely unprecedented. So how does the EU go about a negotiation of this kind? Michel, perhaps you can enlighten us. Well, the European Commission, as the executive arm of the EU, is in charge of the negotiation. But it operates on the basis of a very precise mandate that is given by the Council at 27 member states without UK. In practical terms, it has set up a dedicated team headed by Michel Barnier and made up of experts from across the Commission's departments uh, in each relevant sector. And so I imagine Michel Barnier has some sort of set objectives um, in his mandate. Do you know a bit more about these? Well, the, the main uh, European Union objectives, which were seen as crucial, were twofold. Firstly, uh, to maintain post-Brexit all the rights acquired as EU citizens before Brexit, both ways, both for UK nationals in the Union of 27 of the future and for Union nationals in the UK. The objective is that these rights should be lifelong and should not be altered by any subsequent possible changes in UK law. That's uh, the first crucial, I think, objective. And the second is to maintain the integrity of the internal market construction for the EU27 in the future. Um, as far as the member states and the Commission are concerned, the philosophy is very simple. You are in the internal market. You must be in all of it. And this is a question of level playing field. And is this about the indivisibility of the four freedoms, if I understand you correctly? Yes. Uh, the EU side does not want to allow a pick-and-choose approach, as is well known. That would be, in their view, a devastating precedent. But in a way, it goes deeper than that. Uh, maintaining the integrity of the internal market construction also means that you need uniform rules to be applied by all member countries. You need a common court to interpret these rules in a uniform manner. And you need a strong compliance system, uh, which includes the possibility of infringement procedures against member states uh, to redress the um, possible misses they, they produce. So the EU objective in this respect has been to ensure that none of these would be weakened as a result of the UK's exit. Uh, the UK red lines 
of course, have ruled out these intrinsic element of the internal market and therefore UK cannot be part of it. That conclusion drawn by the uh, EU is almost mechanical. And I think actually, Michel, on that point, I think that's something that really wasn't understood on the UK side. I mean, from the beginning, I perceived a fundamental misunderstanding about the legal nature of the EU. And there was a sort of perception in the political discourse that everything could be negotiated. But as you've just said, that is simply not the case. And the EU is very much stuck to their script. And it's something that they've also done in relation to other third countries, you know, in their debates with the EEA countries and with Switzerland. When it comes to the single market, it is mechanical, as you've just set out. Um, And going back to you, Michel, in your view, have the EU objectives been achieved, you think? It seems so. Uh, The fundamentals of the internal market have not been diluted. Given the choices taken by the UK, it will not stay in the system and it won't be allowed to benefit from it either. But Michel, it might be worth just explaining a bit about this discussion around equivalence for some financial services, because that was, of course, in the press a lot during the last couple of weeks. Right. This is um, almost a textbook case. Some financial services require for third country operators, from the US, for example, a recognition by the EU of the equivalence of their regulatory framework. Uh, The UK Chequers White Paper proposed an equivalence regime which would be decided in common by the UK and the EU regulators. But for the EU, there can be no interference in the EU's autonomy of decision-making in the area of financial services rule. If there is to be equivalence for the EU side, it will be a unilateral decision from the European Commission. And don't you think that there is a little bit of punishment, or at least there are voices out there that are claiming that the EU wants to punish the UK? No, um, I don't think so. It may sometimes have looked like it, uh, but the heart of the matter is, as we just explained, and uh, Gail said it too, all the EU positions were mechanically driven by the need to fully secure the concept of an internal market. And it's a non-negotiable set of issues. Gail, you living in uh, Paris, sort of commuting between Paris and Brussels, uh, as a Brit who has just come back from London, you were in London when uh, the Brexit vote happened. Um, how? What's your view on, on, on this debate and how it is perceived in the UK? Yeah, something that struck me um, really strongly is the, the focus is very different in, in the UK and uh, within uh, the rest of Europe. In, at the European Commission level, Michel Barnier only has a mandate now to negotiate the UK's exit. The negotiation is all about the withdrawal of the UK. The political debate in the UK has all been about what's the future relationship going to be. That's exactly what Chequers sets out, is what will the future relationship in trade, in regulation between the UK and the EU27 will look like. But actually, Michel Barnier doesn't have a mandate to discuss that. We're not at that stage yet. So the political debate in the UK, I think, is in a slightly different place to the actual negotiations. Yes, in, in truth, there are 
they are also somewhat linked. Firstly, because there is a commitment to agree on a political declaration for the future relationship between the UK and the Union, that will sit alongside the withdrawal agreement. Uh, that declaration is still being negotiated, apparently, but anyway, it will be a non-binding political declaration mm. and just a framework declaration. It's not going to be implemented immediately. It's just a framework for the future relationship, which is going to be negotiated in, in a later stage. And secondly, the commitment um, not to re-establish borders on the island of Ireland is relevant for both the UK's withdrawal immediately and also for the future relationship. So the Ireland is a sort of uh, overlapping element between the future relationship yeah. and the immediate withdrawal agreement. Yeah, but I... Even if they're linked, I still think that there isn't an appreciation in the UK that, for example, when the UK Parliament has its meaningful vote, and a lot of political capital has gone into promoting that, the Parliament won't be voting on checkers or not checkers. It will essentially be voting on the withdrawal arrangements with the elements that you've set out, which include the Irish backstop, but it won't be voting <coughs> on specifics about that future relationship. And I don't think that that, you know, that I think it, there is a misunderstanding there. But then tell me more, I'm interested in this Ireland um, issue. Can you, Michelle, maybe you first tell me a bit more about this commitment um, on Ireland? And, and we've heard a lot about uh, the backstop. Why is, why is it so important to the EU? Well, it is important to the EU somehow for historical reasons. Um, I remember back from the Delors cabinet in the 90s, Uh, that this successful peace process enormously involved uh, the European Union at the time and still uh, very much now. Mm. Uh, the EU at the time offered practical and political support over many years for, these, uh, for this peace agreement and there used to be and still going on a peace program which was part of it, drawing from structural funds and including fundings for reconciliation, for conflict transformation. Uh, there was a huge uh, program uh, set up at the time, which was directly involving civil society um, in this peace-building activities. It was a, very much a sort of Europeanized uh, Northern Ireland peace process, And I think the EU uh, has always seen it as a model to be shared elsewhere for other uh, territorial disputes or, or community disputes. So, Michel, are you surprised at how unified the EU has been? Um, I think the UK side probably has been very surprised at how um, the EU side has been unified. Uh, for me, I've been surprised yes and no. Yes, because in this case they were spectacularly unified. And indeed this is not always the case. You often have, in particular at the beginning of negotiations, one or several states trying to get an advantage in compensation for rallying a, uni a unified position. And, and that hasn't happened here. Uh, but in a way, not surprised. Uh, because obviously the feeling was immediate and, and general 
that some, something essential for the United Union wa was at stake, uh, which couldn't be bargained around. Um, Gail, I'd be interested to hear your view on how well companies are prepared, mm. given that you've just spent a few years in-house with the UK-based internationally operating company. So Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think it depends on the sectors, um, but even within sectors, it depends what your supply chain looks like. Um, but in reality, I, I mean, nobody can be fully prepared, uh, whether it's a crash exit in March or an orderly exit in two years' time, the uncertainty around the content of that future trade arrangement is uh, significant. There's no, there's no way around that. And even though the EU and the UK, they've both issued guidance notices, technical notices to try and help businesses prepare, when you read these notices, they're full of caveats uh, because the reality is that nobody knows exactly what the future relationship will be like. Some of the better prepared sectors, I think, are the sort of professional services, insurers, financial institutions. They were made aware very early on that there would be issues around passporting, for example, uh, staff location, recognition of prof professional qualifications. And my impression is that they were able to tackle those issues uh, straight away and prepare. Now, I'm simplifying a lot, but the changes required were spotted early on and addressed for the most part, I think. Uh, for goods, things are quite different. This is where some of the biggest challenges lie. You know, the UK has been in the EU for 40 years, so there are many people working who have never known anything else. Companies that may only ever deal with the single market today, all of a sudden will have to start exporting or importing, depending on what their business is. And the logistics of that is, you know, that's very different. You need different skills, you need different support. If I look at the food and drink sector, because that's the one that I've got the most recent experience with, it's a very integrated sector that trades a lot with the EU27 from the UK. And there isn't any institutional knowledge about how to operate outside the EU, how to manage a customs declaration and so on. And what I observed was that there was a sort of reluctance or a hesitation to really get to grips with these issues. But when you look at you know, the possible outcomes of the negotiation, almost every conceivable outcome for the future trading relationship between the EU27 and the UK implies customs checks. So I would get going with that work. I'd get out there and find out who can help you speak to a customs broker if necessary, start thinking about warehousing solutions, explore alternative suppliers for key products. Um, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't delay those types of conversations. Mm -hmm. And now we often hear about the risks associated with Brexit and uh, what companies should do about mitigating these risks. But, and perhaps this is controversial, but what's your view? Aren't there also maybe some opportunities? Yeah, I think there are definitely opportunities. Um, you know, one of the UK red lines is that it now wants to have its own independent trade policy. So instead of free trade agreements being, you know, settled on the basis of what's right for the EU economy as a whole, they would be based on what is right for the UK economy. And for sure, that will bring opportunities for certain parts of the UK economy and for th certain third countries that may get access to the UK market in a way that they would never be able to get access to the EU market. And then picking up on my last point, and Michelle loves this example, um, think about a customs brokerage business. You know, that whole sector had to run redundancy programs in the run-up to 1992 because all customs checks were abolished in the EU. And 
Michel, you remember having those discussions when you were in Jacques Delors' cabinet, don't you? Yes, and it is somewhat ir ironic for yeah. me, I, I must say. Um, <laughs> in '92, the internal EU borders were all painfully removed. Uh, by the way, this was completely masterminded by Lord Caulfield, the British commissioner of the time. Uh, and we realized that we were laying off most of the customs brokerage pro profession. Uh, I must say, at the time, we were proud of it. Uh, it is now viewed as an opportunity for some to reinvent the profession. <laughs> and I must say that, for me, it sounds like going backwards. Uh, I can still hear Lord, Schofield, Lord Cofield's recurrent quote, there are no longer watchmen on Hadrian's Wall, and it looks to me as if we were reinstalling them here. Yeah, but those those same businesses, I mean, they're now planning to hire and train customs brokers to deal with this UK-EU trade. I mean, they can't believe it, can they? A whole sector has been given a new lease of life. Um, but there may be other opportunities for businesses down the line as well. If as seems likely, the future trade relationship between the UK and the EU27 introduces tariffs or quotas on goods travelling between the two blocks. Now, I know that political statements still refer to frictionless trade and, you know, no limits in terms of volumes, no tariffs. But if you look at the way the discussions are going, that seems highly unlikely. If you take packaging as an example, if I'm a business in Luxembourg and I currently import all my packaging from the UK... In the future, there might be tariffs on that packaging. So I might want to switch to an EU27 supplier. Now that creates an opportunity for a packaging company in Europe. Likewise, if I'm a UK food manufacturer and I currently import all my white sugar, which is an ingredient for my products from Belgium, say, and tariffs are imposed on sugar in the future, I might look to a UK sugar producer to source um, my sugar in future. So yes, there will be commercial opportunities for sure. Okay, but then let's talk about a no-deal scenario. Um, currently, the no-deal planning from the EU side consists of a range of notices, largely putting the owners on companies to mitigate the risks of no-deal no themselves. Michel Barnier's team has been very reluctant to say that the EU will keep certain things moving in the event of a no-deal scenario presumably to keep pressure on the UK to conclude a deal, and has only made some high-level commitments about UK-EU flights being able to continue to operate and may address the question of clearing. But how bad could a no-deal scenario really be, and what are the best things companies can do to mitigate the effects? Well, a, a no-deal outcome would certainly create um, quite a mess. Um, it will create emergency situations in for dozens of issues, even if the Commission is discreet about it. Uh, they are getting prepared to uh, deliver waivers for uh, dozens of situations where it will be viewed that an emergency situation requires uh, to fluidly maintain uh, a cross-channel Cross that channel movement. Whether there is a deal or a no deal uh, will be known pretty soon, at the latest around the end of the year. But in effect, deal or no deal, the UK will become a third country, and companies in the UK and on the continent 
in both cases, need to consider what will change for them. Uh, what will be the impact on imports and exports of goods? Uh, on the degree of need to, for proper establishment for services, and even for ownership structures. Uh, is there a need, like in the airline industry, to be majority EU-owned uh, to register or to have a uh, license delivered? If so, after March 2019, uh, that means majority owned at 27, not at 28. So it's an urgent uh, situation to, to be dealing with. So companies must stay informed and be ready to be reactive. In fact, to be very reactive in the event of a no deal, which, as we just said, will be known in a, very, very soon. And of course, we, we are ready to help them in this preparation. Okay, well, we'll see what will happen. Uh, thank you very much both to you, Michelle, and Gail. Um, I think we've heard that there are divergent views in the UK and in the EU. Um, very interesting insight from Michelle about how these negotiations are being handled and a business view from Gail. Um, it looks like progress is being made and we all, uh, I think, expect a deal. But of the no deal scenario is still on the table, it looks like. And as you say, Michelle, whatever happens, the UK will eventually become a third party to the EU. And, um, we will have a lot of debate going forward about their future relationship with the with the EU. And thank you all for listening to the Clifford Chance podcast. Please feel free to get in touch. Our contact details are available on the Clifford Chance website. If you want to read more about any of the issues we have discussed, then you can look at our website and you can look at the links that we have listed in the short text accompanying the podcast. You've been listening to the Clifford Chance Podcast. Please subscribe to our podcast by visiting cliffordchance.com and follow us on LinkedIn. Until next time.